Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. If you would be, open your Bibles to John the 8th chapter. John the 8th chapter. I believe on your pew Bibles, that'll be somewhere around 947 or 948. And we'll study along through there in just a few minutes. Uh, We are thankful for each one, our visitors. We're thankful for our newcomers. And of course, there's a newcomers dinner tonight. And we will enjoy the time that we can spend together there. Uh, We are thankful for the interest that's already been shown in the Bibles for reading through the Bible in a year. It's amazing how many have already been signed up for that. Uh, Continue to sign up for that. And we look forward to the good that that will create in our lives over this uh, year of 2008. Also, remember the prayer request. If you want to pray for someone this week, there are very specific things listed that they would like for you to pray for. It's things that you have filled out. Uh, They are on each end of the foyer and at the Welcome Center also. Be sure and pick one of those up and pray every day this week uh, for the concerns that an individual has brought to our attention. Also, do keep in mind, men, to mark your calendar for that Saturday. And if you're elder or deacon, uh, mark your calendar also for the Friday night there of the Men's Summit. In a couple of weeks, that should be a tremendous blessing for us. Have you ever noticed that when you consider sin, that everybody else's always seems a lot worse? If we were going to say right now, and of course we couldn't do this, but if we could say, who's the worst sinner in this room? You notice that it'd always be someone else? Or if we were going to say, hey, what's the worst kind of sin? You ever notice that it probably would be some sin that you don't commit? Isn't it interesting how our sins tend to be the little sins and everybody else's sins tend to be the big sin? You know, Jesus gave us a challenging passage that we'll study tonight, but he also gave us a beautiful passage tonight. Jesus in this passage shows us how to deal in difficult situations. Jesus in this passage shows us mercy. He shows us honesty. He shows us justice. And He shows us how in doing all of that, we can let our Christian light shine. If you would, let's read this story and then we'll go back and think about it. We're in John the 8th chapter and we're beginning at verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? 
And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I want to very quickly give you the conclusion of this sermon so that you'll see what we're working toward all through this. Isn't it interesting that the way John lays this out, that that is the conclusion of the story of the woman that was accused of adultery. I'm the light of the world. Now, the question is, are we going to walk with the light? Or are we going to walk in darkness? And he closes out that by saying, but have the light of life. Are we going to have the light of life that gives eternal life? Or are we going to live the life that is out in the darkness? Well, Jesus, I suppose I want to have light. I absolutely want to be a follower of you. Can you tell me what that would incur? What does that cost me? And friends, you know the Christian life. We could list numerous things that God would ask of us if we're to let our little Christian light shine. We know for most part what God would not want us to do that would put a bushel over that Christian light. But have you ever stopped to think about that one time that the Lord talks about letting that Christian light shine is the way we treat people when it seems like that their sin is the ugliest? Isn't it interesting that whenever we throw someone out in the middle and all we want is to see them condemned, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, now that's blowing out the Christian light. That's putting a bushel over the Christian light. And so all of us, we're working to this end in this sermon tonight. We all want to honestly be able to say, Lord, I want my Christian life to shine when people around me do the right thing and when people around me do the wrong thing. I want my light to always show you, to magnify how you would handle things. Let's break down a few thoughts as we look to the way Jesus would handle things. It starts out at the beginning, verse 1 and 2, a beautiful morning. Jesus gathers early from the morning of Mount Olives. He makes his way down into the temple and they sit down to study. Jesus is the teacher, so he is the one setting in their day and in their culture. It would be just the opposite of what we're accustomed to, where the teacher stands and everyone else sits. It would be just the opposite. So Jesus is the one in authority here. He's setting down and apparently all the others are standing. But then they're interrupted. Did you notice there in verse 3, they find that there's a sinner cast in the midst of them. It's interesting to me how verse 3 literally ends by saying this woman caught in adultery, that they had set her in the midst. Now, why didn't they go ahead and take her over to the Sanhedrin court? And why didn't they go ahead and take care of this official business the way that it ought to have been taken care of if actually she was caught in the very act of adultery as they said? You and I have probably already put this together. Their desire was not to bring justice to this woman. Their desire, as the text clearly states in verse 6, they were testing Jesus. Now note, they didn't care what it cost this woman in order to bring down Jesus. And the sad thing is today, whenever we mistreat others, even others that have made mistakes, we too are guilty of the same thing. We're trying to bring down Jesus. 
You remember when Jesus approached Saul about being a persecutor of the church and he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Friends, it needs to ring in my mind clearly that Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? How we treat others has a direct effect. It is directly how we treat Jesus Christ. And so now this woman is thrown into the middle. There's something not right about this situation. But again, can you imagine how maybe some of the bystanders standing around whenever they said the word, this woman's called adultery in the very act of adultery. Do you think there's anyone that said, no, adultery. Oh, how terrible. Because after all, she belongs in the middle because she's the worst sinner here. After all, she belongs in the middle because none of the sins I've ever committed are as bad as the sin that she commits. Tonight, what sin would we throw in the middle? Oh, surely you didn't do that. Well, I know I'd never do that. I can't believe anybody would do that. Friends, how does the Lord rank sin? Which sin doesn't separate an individual from God? And which sin does separate individuals from God? Now, it's clear that there are different consequences on earth to different sins. But friends, if we want to talk about sin and our relationship with God, we'd have to find ourselves along with Paul where he so beautifully states about the reason Jesus came to this earth, 1 Timothy, the first chapter and verse 15, was to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am chief. If we want to talk about spiritual consequences of sin, every one of us belongs in the middle. Every one of us ought to be thrown in the middle along with that woman that's caught in the very act of adultery. That's where we belong. We're sinners. The only hope for that woman was the Savior that was standing right there. The only hope for you and I was the Savior that was standing right there. Who belongs in the midst? Friends, I'll do well in my life spiritually if I recognize the fact I'm one of the ones that belongs in the midst. But notice also the mercy that Jesus was pleading for. If you'll scan along verse 5, 6, and 7, did you notice the fact that they brought up the fact of Moses' law and that it did allow for this woman to be stoned? Now, if you read in Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter, and verse 22, It does say that the woman should be stoned, but it also says that the man should be stoned. It's both the man and the woman. And of course, that brings up a lot of red flags to this. If she was caught in the very act, why was just the woman there and why was not the man there? Notice Jesus doesn't go there. You see, this whole situation was, as it says there in verse 6, was just to test Jesus. Here's how the test probably went in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees that brought this woman to Jesus. If he sided with the law of Moses and said, yes, if she's guilty of adultery, you ought to stone her. You remember not long after this, there was a group of Jews that wanted someone else put to death. It was Jesus. And you remember the dilemma that they had? You know, we've studied that over the last 13 weeks. Remember, the dilemma they had was that Jews under the Roman Empire during the first century was not allowed to execute. So you see, they had Jesus in what we would call a perfect catch-22 situation. 
If he stands up for Moses and the law of Moses and says, absolutely, she should be stoned, he brings the Roman Empire down upon him. But yet if he sides with the Roman Empire and and he says, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to execute anyone here. There should be no one stoned here today. Then he brings all of the believers upon him to say, oh, so you don't believe in the law of Moses anymore. I thought you kept it perfectly. Now keep in mind, as we discuss this tonight, they had no desire to keep the law of Moses. They had no desire to deal justly with this woman. Their desire wholly was to entrap Jesus. And so Jesus was going to use this as an opportunity for him not to be entrapped in something he had no business doing. He wasn't an eyewitness to whether or not that woman was caught in adultery or not. He couldn't make the call in that sense. It wasn't his call to be made. It had to be eyewitnesses that made that call according to the law of Moses. But what's beautiful is he's going to show us the ending of this story. How beautiful mercy can be. And so we see him here as he begins to show mercy towards this woman. Instead of jumping on a bandwagon to say, let's condemn. Let's condemn. Let's condemn. Notice as he pleads for honesty. As you look down in verse 8, 9, and 10, you know, he began writing on the ground. And of course, this was something that probably, as much as anything, was to give them an opportunity to think about what they were doing. Now, you know, isn't it frustrating in, in the sense of curiosity? And that, I mean solely curiosity when I say frustrating. Isn't it frustrating that the only time we know of Jesus ever writing something down, the Scriptures doesn't tell us what He wrote. We do know that God wrote. And remember, He took His finger and He wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. And now we have Jesus stooping down to the ground and we have Him writing Now there is one theory, and I emphasize theory, that what he wrote in the ground might have been a list of their sins. He wrote it in dust. Think how easy it is to just wipe through that dust and that list of sin is not remembered any longer. Isn't that ironic if that in in fact is what he wrote? God's law is, is just... And it endures over time. But isn't it wonderful to have a Savior that says, I can write sin in such a way that they can be blotted out. I can erase those and they don't have to be remembered anymore. We don't know what He was writing in the dust. But we do know it gave them time to continually ask Him, Are you going to answer? Are you going to answer this? And finally, his answer was, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. In Greek, that without sin is literally one word that means sinless. It literally means someone who has never committed a sin. In other words, whoever is ready now to condemn this person because you are so innocent, start throwing rocks. Under the old law, The eyewitnesses were the ones that had to throw the first stones. And so he's calling those eyewitnesses out. And he's saying, are you ready to do this? But he's also, we know for a fact, 
convicting them of their sins. If you would, take your eyes back down to verse 9. Notice when they heard this, it says, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. What Jesus was doing here, He succeeded. He wanted them to be honest enough with themselves to realize that in one sense or another, we all belong in the middle of that circle. There's no one here that can say, I've never sinned. There's no one here that can say, I've never made a mistake. Now friends, there may be someone come to us sometime and say, you know, I have done this. And we might say in our mind, oh, I'd never do that. But I need to be humble and honest enough to recognize the fact that that doesn't separate me from them in the sense that what they need is a Savior. And what I need is a Savior. That kind of honesty produces a person that shows mercy. Jesus lifts his eyes up and he realizes that beginning at the oldest, probably showing the most wisdom, working all the way down to the youngest, he realizes that no one is left except him and this woman. And this is the first time he's spoken to this woman. And so he says to the woman at the end of 10, where are your accusers and has no one condemned you? And the first time that the woman speaks up here and the woman says, no one, Lord, verse 11. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now John, the third chapter, just earlier in this same book, tells us that Jesus did not come to this earth to condemn, but to save. Now, He will come back again. He'll return a second time, and that second time, He is returning to save and to condemn. But he came to this first time to the earth only to save. He wasn't an eyewitness to this woman. He had no responsibility to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stone you now. But did you notice how even in all of this act of showing mercy, he still, he still requires of her. When you leave from here, I want you to change your life. I want you to go and sin no more. Friends, you and I should never condone sin. You and I should never support a sinner in their sin. But there is a major difference in condoning sin and being a person that doesn't show mercy. Let's make sure that we're always merciful. Let's make sure that we're always honest with ourselves, because that helps us to show that mercy. And let's make sure that we're always just. We do need to live a better life. We do need to live for the Lord. And whoever comes and seeks God's forgiveness, they need to be granted that forgiveness by the church family, but they need to be encouraged. Go and sin no more. And now here we are, just as promised. We're back to that same conclusion. 
Hear a version of it one more time as you look at verse 12 again one more time. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The sun, S-U-N, is the major source of light and energy to the earth. We see the light of the moon and, and we know that that's only a reflection of the sun. When we think about Jesus Christ saying, I am the light, that's the second of the seven I am statements in John. And he says, I am the light. Now what he is asking us, are we going to be a reflection of that light? Or are we going to walk down a path of darkness and not reflect the Lord? Now after these previous 11 verses, it becomes kind of clear what might be on the writer's mind here and on Jesus' mind by linking all of this together. How we deal with others in difficult situations shows a whole lot about whether or not we have the Lord shining in our life and whether or not we're shining Jesus as we just sung tonight in the light of others. When little children sing this little Christian light of mine, it's precious to the ear because the message is so powerful. Friends, when we as adults sing this little Christian light of mine, we understand that it requires so much of us. Let's deal with it wisely. Tonight, are you letting Christ's light shine in you? If not, why not become a Christian tonight? Are you willing to repent and turn away from sins? Are you willing to confess before others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Won't you be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins tonight? Come out of that water, ready to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father. It's all about magnifying God. Maybe somewhere along the way as a Christian, you've lost that reflection. Maybe you haven't dealt wisely in your relationship with God or maybe your relationship with others. Let's make sure... Let's make sure that we're right with God, that we're right with others. And let's leave here tonight with a desire that tonight and, and all this week and all of our life, we want to reflect Jesus. Jesus found himself in some difficult situations, but he also found the righteous way through them every time. Let's be like that. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand.